Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Again, I thank you for those uh, who are in here today. I thank you that they uh, took it upon themselves to uh, get out of the house and, and be here today, to uh, be joined together with their brothers and sisters and worship you through song and through giving and through hearing from your word. Lord, I pray for those who are unable to be with us, uh, whether the, prevent, uh, the weather prevented them or, or sickness is preventing them. I pray that uh, you would be near to them, that they would know that you care about them, that we care about them, and they are loved. Lord, I thank you for your word. I, I thank you that it is timeless and true. And I pray that you would use it to change something in our lives today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a lot of feel-good Cinderella sports stories out there where a team will go from incredibly unsuccessful and then under the right leadership, they make the playoffs or even go to the championship and sometimes even win the championship. There's many, many movies about, made about those teams. But in a 2012 article published on BleacherReport.com, there's a story of an athlete named Bruce Irvin that's beyond any other sports story I've, re I've read. Irvin grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and lived a very hard life. When he was a sophomore in high school, his bad grades made him ineligible to play high school football. By the time Irvin was a junior in high school, he dropped out, and he lived an aimless life on the streets. Within a short period of time, Irvin was dealing drugs for a couple of years and spent some time in jail for robbery. Irvin's life would have continued to go down more and more of a destructive path until a friend arrested uh, until a friend of his was arrested for moving cocaine. That friend told Irvin he had incredible football talent and he shouldn't waste it and he needed to do whatever he needed to do to make his living through that sport. And at that point Irvin knew that pursuing football was his only way out of the life that he was living. In 2007, after some encouragement from a local football coach who also saw a lot of talent in Irvin, Irvin earned his GED. Irvin eventually made his way to Mount San Antonio College in California and was able to play football for their team. After Irvin notched 16 sacks and 72 tackles at the defensive end position, people started to take notice of this junior college athlete. Before long, Irvin was receiving offers from Division I schools, and he chose to transfer to West Virginia University and their Mountaineers football team. During his college career with West Virginia, Irvin totaled 22 and a half sacks. I don't know how they calculate the half of one. <laughs> maybe, maybe teamed up with somebody else. Then this number, though, 22 and a half sacks, along with his impressive showing at the NFL Combine, continued to turn heads. And in 2012, Irvin was drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. First round at number 15 overall by the Seattle Seahawks, signing a four-year, $9.3 million contract. And if anyone remembers, the Seattle Seahawks won their one and only Super Bowl victory only two years later in 2014. And I checked. Bruce Irvin played outside linebacker for the Seahawks in that victory, earning him a Super Bowl ring. Six years before that, though, no one thought a kid named Bruce Irvin from Atlanta, Georgia, would be profitable for any group 
much less an NFL team. But the kid that wasn't doing anything but destroying his life on the streets of Atlanta ended up proving himself an incredibly valuable asset in helping a team accomplish what every NFL team seeks to achieve, a championship victory. Paul describes in our passage this morning that that kind of success story is exactly what God created the church to be. Those who the world casts aside and who them, they themselves feel like they have no worth and nothing to give, being invaluable to the, to, to, to the church. Invaluable assets to the growth and movement of the body of Christ and to the furthering of the kingdom and the sustainer of the universe. Isn't that an incredible thought? It's an incredible truth. The first point that we come to as we continue to work our way through uh, 1 Corinthians is the foundation. Paul's words to a world where one's earthly socioeconomic status, race, and ethnicity were constantly being brought up as reminders to them are every much as important and valuable and meaningful today. Paul's words to a world where people were always being told they weren't good enough are just as important, valuable, and meaningful today. They are the most unifying words in existence. For the only basis is the blood of Jesus. That's it. The only basis is the blood of Jesus. The only basis is the trust put in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. The only basis is adoption into God's family with God showing no favoritism based on anything having to do with us. The only basis is that when God looks at each and every one of us, all He sees is the righteousness of Christ covering us. That's what we sang about in the song just before our offertory. I am the righteousness of God. Declaring that because the blood of Jesus covers us. And that's all that God sees when He looks at us. He doesn't see all the garbage in our lives. He doesn't see who we are or who we were. All He sees is the righteousness of Christ covering us. And so we can declare, I am the righteousness of God. We read, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Obviously not. Isn't He also the God of the Gentiles? Of course He is. There is only one God, and He makes people right with Himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. doesn't matter who you are. The only basis is the blood of Jesus. Because of this impartial justification based only on faith and trust in the blood of Jesus for salvation, there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil. 
for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Why? For God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. Time and time again, this is what we read, that God does not have favorites or show favoritism towards anyone based on their past or past sin or parents or culture or socioeconomic status or religious background or gender or race or skin color or ethnicity or language spoken. We are all the same. We are all born sinners and we all sin until the day we die. Only based on trust in the blood of His Son does God adopt and welcome any of us into His family and pour out His blessings on us and make us a fellow heir with Christ. Nothing else. Because of that, we have instruction time and time again, very similar to this. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the Scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others... You are committing a sin. doesn't matter for what reason. If you favor some people over others, based on whatever is going on in your mind, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. If God does not see anyone as superior or inferior based on who, we, who they are as humans, then we as His children certainly must not. Not only because He doesn't do it, but why also must we not do it? Because doing so is an offense and an affront to Almighty God. He created that person. So to discriminate against them, to show favoritism against them, would be an offense and an affront to God. He created that person in His image. Almighty God is one. He is three members, and, and all three members of the Trinity are one. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God by nature, power, and essence. They all exist, communicate, and relate to each other perfectly. While there is mutual submission in role and position, all three members of the Trinity are equal in value and worth. Not one is inferior or superior in worth to another. As such, all three members of the Trinity were present and involved in the creation of the universe and most importantly in the creation of man and woman. And what did all three members do? Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So if there is no partiality among the members of the Trinity, then being made in His image means that there is no partiality among those created in His image. Which includes who? You, 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 you. Every single person who has ever existed. See, it was part of who we originally were not to show any partiality between any of us. In the Garden of Eden, on day six, I was going to say day one. On, on day six, 
That was how we were created to be. That was who we are. So what happened? Sin entered the picture. And the curse of sin spread to all humankind. And the curse of favoritism and discrimination and concepts of superiority and inferiority and value spread to all humankind. And sadly, even on this MLK Day weekend of 2020, we still very much deal with the effects of the curse of sin all the time today. This is what I want to clearly get across blatantly from Scripture, especially this weekend as we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King Jr. and the legacy that he left for us. Discrimination, concepts of superiority and inferiority in value, and favoritism are all not from God. None of them. God has nothing to do with any of that. All of that instead is connected to sin and the sinfulness of humanity. That's what it's connected to. Natural or conditioned biases are directly connected to our sin nature and are therefore evil. I don't know if anybody's thought about it that way. But it's connected to sin nature and it's therefore evil. When we put our faith and trust in the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf, we also have to recognize that he put to death concepts and actions in connection with discrimination. Since that is sin, it was put to death on the cross. Since that is connected to our sin nature, we need to be casting that off daily and asking the Holy Spirit to renew our minds and replace that sin nature with Holy Spirit nature. We need to ask God to take off of us the old nature and clothe us with the new nature. And that is seeing everyone the way that He sees them and treating everyone the way that He treats them. Something that we also need to recognize and realize that's very clear from Scripture is that discrimination is a spiritual war. It's a spiritual war. There's nothing about God or having to do with how He does anything that has anything to do with discrimination. Therefore, discrimination of any kind is anti-God. Did you think about that? It's anti-God. Who loves everything having to do with anti-God? The enemy of our souls. Therefore, discrimination needs to be something we pray against just as much as we pray against everything else connected to the current tide of evil and darkness in this world. And we need to put on the full armor of God to protect us against thinking and acting in a discriminatory way, just as much as we need to do that against any other sin we struggle with. It's not going to go away unless we treat it that way. Just as God is actively using our salvation based on the death and resurrection of Jesus to redeem every aspect of our lives, this is no exception. After everything else in the end times is completed and everyone has either been glorified or judged and and thrown into the lake of fire, the new heavens and new earth will be created. 
Everything will return to, to, to Eden. But even better, because this time we'll be glorified and have glorified bodies. That's where eternity will begin. And as we've discussed with our whole mini-series on spiritual gifts, every single one of them is a partial foretaste of the new earth. It's a partial foretaste of heaven. The gift of prophecy, if you remember, is a partial foretaste of full knowledge and communication with God. The gift of healing is, par- is a partial foretaste of our glorified bodies, completely free from disease and pain and death. The gift of tongues or languages is a partial foretaste of being around people from every tribe, nation, and language, all glorifying God together as one for all of eternity. As such, it should come as absolutely no surprise then that God created the church to be a partial redemption of the unity of being made in the image of God. As we've seen from Scripture, God's family is made up of people from every background, language, ethnicity, race, past, everything. Anything and everything. We will fully witness the unity that only comes from salvation found in Jesus Christ on the first day of eternity. But for now, God has given us a glimpse at that. What we can look forward to, a foretaste of what that will be like. That foretaste is called the body of Christ or the church. That is the theological foundation the theological foundation for Paul's practical instruction about each of our functions and how each of our functions, how how each of us function in the body of Christ or the church. We talked about the foundation. Secondly, we're talking about the function. Remember what I said last week about verse 12 being the thesis statement or the summary of what Paul would discuss throughout the whole rest of chapter 12? Do you remember that? Okay, I have some people nodding. For those of you who weren't here last week or fell asleep at some point last week, verse 12 is the thesis statement or the summary of what Paul will discuss throughout the whole rest of chapter 12. Verse 14 is the first part of that thesis. In other words, it's the further explanation of what Paul is getting at. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be in verse 14. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. It's in the New Testament 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. And again, touching on what we talked about last week, Paul is using the image, the illustration of the human body in direct connection to how the church must function. Verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. Paul reiterates his point that he makes in verse 12. That just as the human body has many members, and not just one kind of body part, that's the same way Christ's body, or the church, is. He goes deeper into his point as it pertains to Christ's body or the church in verses 15 through 17. And he says, if the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, Let's think about this logical, logically. Where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, 
Where would the self, sense of smell be? This is Paul's instruction against anyone letting toxic thinking from the world spill over into how they see themselves as humans and as members of the church. Those thoughts that said they were not good enough were of the world. Those thoughts that said they were not good enough to be of any use to the church were toxic spillover from the world into their minds. Specifically in connection with the Corinthian church, this passage is sandwiched in the middle of Paul's greater discussion on spiritual gifts. We've talked about spiritual gifts in, in for, uh, earlier in chapter 12, and we pick up with them again in, verse, in chapter 13, chapter 14. So this is sandwiched in that greater discussion of spiritual gifts. While still complex parts, hands are more complex in their dexterity than feet, right? You can do way more things with hands because they're, they're a lot more dexterous than feet. Hands are physically capable to do more things than feet can. Now, you can train yourself if you don't have hands to be able to do things with your feet, but generally your hands are more capable than your feet. But what does that also mean? That obviously does not negate the crucial importance of feet, right? You still need both. You still need both hands and feet. What are you doing when you compare a hand to a foot? You're comparing apples to oranges is what you're doing. You still need both. They're two completely different body parts. You're comparing apples to oranges. Same with eyes and ears. Obviously, while ears are complex in design and function in order to hear sound waves and then transfer those signals to the brain, eyes are a lot more complex in their design. But an eye's complexity, right, in no way negates the vital importance of ears. You can't hear anything with your eyes, right? You still need your ears to be able to hear things. Your whole sense of hearing is based on your ears, not on your eyes. Likewise, your whole sense of seeing is based on your eyes, not on your ears. So when you compare your eyes and your ears again, you're comparing apples to oranges. It doesn't make any sense. You need both. And in, no, in eyes complexity, no matter how complex it is in, in comparison to your ears, in no way negates the vital importance of ears. They're two different body systems. You don't have an ENT look at your eyes. In the same way you don't have an, obst uh, 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 in, uh, an eye doctor, I was going to say obstetrician, but they don't look at your eyes. <laughs> an eye doctor look at your ears. There are two different body systems, optical and auditory. You're comparing, again, apples to oranges. And yet there were those in the Corinthian church who were doing that same absurd comparison. Those who had so-called seemingly less significant spiritual gifts thought they weren't as important or as needed as those who had the more so-called miraculous gifts. Those were the gifts of understanding Scripture and applying it to everyday life situations, or gifts of administration, or gifts of encouragement, or gifts of service, apparently thought they weren't as crucial to the growth of the body of Christ as those who had the gifts of prophecy, miracles, healing, and tongues did. 
Paul is saying here, that line of thinking that you're not good enough or you're not as needed or crucial is just as absurd as comparing hands to feet or eyes to ears in design and function. Both are vitally necessary to the functioning of the body. If anyone here today has the seemingly less significant gifts of understanding and applying scriptural truths or coming alongside of and encouraging people or serving each other's serving others needs or keeping things in order are you using them are you using those gifts to serve the church to build the church to grow the church or do you think they're not that useful and therefore you don't use them or do you think you wouldn't be any good using them I'm sorry to tell you, but that's not your call. You have no control over whether or not you think you'd be good enough using your spiritual gifts. Paul says here, it's absurd to think that either your spiritual gifts or you being the one using those spiritual gifts wouldn't be good enough to anyone. You are completely and crucially necessary and vital to the body of Christ. I want that to sink in. Each and every person here, you, are crucially and vitally important and crucially necessary to the body of Christ and to our church body. So, this is my call to you to use your spiritual gifts. No matter how insignificant you might think you are, No matter how insignificant you may think your gifts are, use them. And in direct connection to this, don't think that your past or anything about you disqualifies you from being fully involved in the growth of our church. Because guess what? It's not your call. It's not your church. It's not your gift. It's Jesus' church, and you don't have any say in the mission and what mission he gives to you and how then the Holy Spirit equips you to do that mission. You don't have any say in the matter. Sorry to burst your bubble. If that's what you were using as an excuse for decades, you can't use it anymore. As we talked about last week, the city of Corinth was incredibly diverse. As a major trade city, it was incredibly diverse in ethnicity, in race, in culture, in language, and it was incredibly diverse in socioeconomic status. There were very rich, powerful people living there, and there were very poor people living there. And it was out of that environment that the Corinthian church was born, with people from every ethnicity, race, culture and language that existed in the Roman Empire and beyond and with people from every socioeconomic status making it up. And so there was always the possibility and there was always the tension of discrimination based on anything and everything in the church. And so there was always the possibility and tension of someone not thinking they were good enough or not righteous enough or that something or anything about them disqualified them or made them not useful to the church. Paul's words are just as true towards that as well today. Just like comparing hands and feet and ears to eyes is absurd, like 
as absurdly like comparing apples to oranges. Comparing yourself and your spiritual gift to an idea of an ideal believer is absurdly like comparing apples to oranges. The only person we should be comparing ourselves to is Jesus. That's it. Not, I'm not going to use my spiritual gifts until I'm this level, until I'm this good enough, until I've learned this much about the Bible, until I've completely gotten over this sin that I'm struggling with. You are you. God created you to be the ethnicity, race, or culture that you are. You had no say in that. That was all God. God gave and allowed your past experiences to shape you into the person that you are now. That was not your call. That was God's call. God put you into the socioeconomic status you're in whether higher or lower, for better, for worse, for a reason. And God has a vital place for you in the church, the body of Christ, and a crucial job for you to do. So what is it? That's my question today. What is it? What's the job He's given you to do? What's the function that you have in our church body, in this local body of Christ? What is the spiritual gift he's given to you to do that job? What is it? It's a very simple question. The same time, it's a very loaded question, right? What is it? What are the spiritual gifts he's given to you to do it? And who and what has God created you specifically to be? And what experiences has he led you through to bring you to this point, this second, right here today? And what is he redeeming and transforming in your life to be an influence on the growth of this church? What is it? I'm not going to accept. I'm sorry. I'm not going to accept. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about it. I don't know. I'm not going to accept that. It's okay if you don't know, but it's not okay to stay there in the I don't know. It's not okay to, not, to never move or do anything and not be of any use to the body of Christ. If you don't know what your job is, if you don't know what your function is, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, investigate. Figure it out. We're not children. God does not call us to be children. He calls us to be mature. He calls us to be mature believers. Explore in prayer. Don't stay in the I don't know. Explore it. Investigate it. Explore it in prayer. Talk it over with a believing friend. Say, I know from the Bible that there is a place for me in the body of Christ. And I know from the Bible that there is a job for me to do. So, what is it? I'm going to figure it out with God's help and then do it. It's very simple. If you don't know what it is, figure it out. Explore it in prayer with God. Talk it over with a believing friend. 
figure because scripture is clear and plain and truthful about this that there is a place and a function and a job and a mission and a spiritual gift for every single person sitting here sorry you came on the wrong sunday or anyone listening or watching to this later there is a place for each and every one of you and there's a job for each and every one of you to do and there's a function for each and every one of you so if you don't know what it is figure it out with God's help and then do it as it's the father's will and him being the one actually moving and changing hearts and lives and it's the son who gives the individual missions he wants each of us to be doing and as it's the Holy Spirit who gives the spiritual gifts to empower each of us to do the Son's mission which will accomplish the Father's will it comes as no surprise to us that it's completely up to God and not us as to our place and function in the body of Christ we read in verse 18 but now God has placed the members what are the members? Everybody, every single person sitting here. But now, God has placed the members, each one of them. Not one of you is forgotten. Even as much as you may try to hide. Not one of you is forgotten. Each one of them in the body, just as He desired. So, if in your investigation and your exploration you figure out what your mission is that God has given to you and how he has empowered you to do that through the spiritual gifts he's given to you, you then have to do it. You can't sit on it. You can't hide from it. You can't run away from it. Because who is the one who gave all those things to you? God. And so he is the one who has placed you in the body, in the function and job that he's placed you to do, so it's his desire. It's not up to you. It's not your call. You are not control. You are in no control over it. You can't say, "I know what it is, so I'm not going to do it." You know what that is? That's blatant disobedience. God is the one who has given you His mission. God is the one who has equipped you to do it. So God expects you to do it. So, each and every one of us has a vital place in this body and a crucial function in this body if you don't know what it is talk to God about it talk to a believing friend about it and figure it out and as we talked about last week the way that God made you and who you are guess what is never a weakness the way that God made you and who you are and the experiences and the past that he's led you through is never a weakness. It's never a weakness, and it's never an excuse. It's never a source of inferiority or debilitation. It's certainly not a reason for discrimination, nor fearing discrimination in the body of Christ. Why? We all have a place. We all belong. We all have a function. We all have a mission. We all have something we need to be doing. We all have a job. And we all have at least one spiritual gift to empower us to carry out the mission Jesus has given to each and every one of us. And since God is a miraculous God, anybody want to disagree with me on that? 
Okay, so since God is a miraculous God, he somehow makes all of those spiritual gifts and individual missions that he gives to each and every one of us work together as one. What do you know? So the whole body grows and the whole body moves forward as one. So, what is it? Let's all, as many members, as God's word tells us, grow and move together as one and do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is not only full of theology and full of scriptural truth, but it's also full of practicality. Lord, we cannot grow, we cannot move forward if even just one member of the body isn't doing their job. Because just as the human body doesn't function properly, if not all the members of, of the body work together as one, we cannot function properly and we cannot move forward and we cannot grow if even just one person has not figured out what their mission is and what spiritual gift you've given to them and they're not doing something about it. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us. I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that if there's anybody here who has never thought about, hmm, you know, I've never really thought about the mission, the function that God has given to me within this local body of Christ. And I've never thought about what spiritual gift he's given to me. I pray that today, when they go home, they'd spend some time with you and figure it out. And if they need to call somebody or, or, or meet with a friend for lunch and talk about it, I pray that they would do that. Lord, I pray they wouldn't ignore it. I pray they wouldn't sweep it under the rug, but that they would do something about it, that they would pursue it. Because, Lord, this is your living truth from your living word. And so we must accept it at face value and do something with it. Each and every single person here. And, Lord, as we all do that, and those who are unable to be with us this morning do that, we will marvel at the way that you work everything together as one, and we will marvel as we move forward together as one. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.